But one thing to mention is is that we are here amid the coronavirus crisis. So if our audio is uh, is bad, then uh, we're going to blame it on the fact we're doing this remotely. Welcome to the UCL Physics and Engineering and Medicine podcast. I'm Gemma Vale here with Jamie Guggenheim. Hi everyone. We're meeting researchers to learn about the latest research in medical physics and biomedical engineering at UCL. This week, we're talking to Dr. Katarina Vega, research fellow in the Proton and Advanced Radiotherapy Research Group. Enjoy. Hello, Katarina. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So, Katarina, what do you do here? I'm a research fellow at the Department of Medical Physics and Biomedical Engineering at UCL. And so I'm a full-time researcher. I work in the field of pediatric radiotherapy at the moment. We use radiotherapy to, to cure cancer. Radiotherapy is exactly delivering high doses of radiation to cure a tumor and is, is used very routinely as part of cancer treatment. In children in particular, it's also used to treat brain tumors and so other types of more common solid tumors that, that exist. So when you talk about radiotherapy, how does it work from a patient's perspective? So say I found out that I have a tumour and it's a cancer tumour, they prescribe radiotherapy. What, what happens to me after that? So uh, you would come into the radiotherapy department and the first thing we do is have, take a CT scan of you. So a, a 3D image of the inside of your body. And based on that CT scan, we would personalise the best possible treatment. The doctor would identify what is the tumour and we would prescribe the beams to give the highest dose possible there. And for example, if you use a more conventional type of treatment, such as x-rays, you end up using different beams. So they all converge at that central spot of the tumor, and you end up just giving a, a sort of path of radiation around to the healthy tissues. After your treatment is approved, then you come back for treatment. And now depending on the prescription that you're giving and on the number of fractions, you end up coming every day for a few weeks, it can be three weeks, six weeks, and every day we'll give the same treatment until we reach the prescription that the doctor made for you. I know radiotherapy is really, really common in, in cancer treatment. So why do we need people like you researching it? So the thing about radiotherapy is nowadays it's very efficient, it's very safe, and it's actually quite a cheap method in cancer treatment, and we use it a lot, but it's still not perfect we still have a long way to go to make cancer treatment as best as possible. Uh, and in the case of radiotherapy, the research usually goes in two possible ways. One is to improve outcomes in terms of survival. So there are still some subgroups of the population that have quite poor prognosis. For example, lung cancer is a very common one. And the second venue of research is mostly on reducing side effects, because when we are giving a dose of radiation to the tumor, we also end up giving those to the healthy tissues nearby. And this can cause side effects in the short and also long term. What kind of radiation is used in radiotherapy? So in radiotherapy, there's different types of treatments. They can be internal or external beam. In my research, I mostly deal with external beam radiation. That means we target a very collimated beam in the direction of the tumor. Now, this beam can be made of different types of particles or radiation. Uh, so the most commonly used are x-rays, so we use photons in the treatment, but there are other ways of doing it, such as proton therapy, for example, which is becoming a bit more hype uh, in the society and in the newspapers nowadays, but also, for example, electrons as well. And, and what part do you work on? What's your sort of research targets, your aims? So I'm focused on trying to reduce side effects of treatment in children. 
particularly in children, because it's a cohort that has quite good prognosis in comparison to other subgroups. Doesn't mean that all children have a very high survival, but the majority do survive. So around 75% survive for 10 years or more. So they grow up and they become adults. They live their lives after treatment. And so it becomes really important to reduce side effects in this group because they will grow up to suffer from them, but also because the tissues of children are more sensitive to radiation. So they are growing, they're maturing, and therefore they're more susceptible to the, the side effect that can cause long-term problems. So how do you go about trying to reduce those side effects? So what we do is we try to find the best personalized treatments that uh, minimize the dose that you're giving elsewhere. So for example, if you want to treat a tumor in the brain, you do target the radiation, but you end up having to radiate parts of the healthy tissue in the brain. So it's a lot about modeling what can happen when you are giving those, those doses of radiation and try to make sure that we're minimizing them. So for example, most of my research at the moment is focused on new second cancers. So something we do know that is a common side effect 10, 20 years down the line after treatment is that these children will grow up and start developing new cancers. So this is not the same cancer coming back, is they actually having new cancers, which if you had radiotherapy when you were a child, you're more likely to suffer from it. The, the statistics that are in publications nowadays, we think that these children are 15 times more likely of having a new cancer 30 years down the line. And we want to try to minimize those as much as possible. So as you say, it's not the same cancer coming back, but it's because you've been through radiotherapy when you were really young or, or when you were younger, you might now have a higher likelihood of having a new cancer. Exactly. The, the easiest way to, to compare these two is essentially to atomic bomb survivors. If we study, for example, the Japanese population, we see that. But in the Japanese population, you gave a very different radiation type not for cancer cure purposes. So there are very big differences, but the concept is the same, is the fact that you delivered unwanted radiation to your healthy organs means you're more likely to have mutations and likely develop cancer later. So I'm curious about the radiation still. So you mentioned you sometimes might use x-rays, for example. Are these the same kind of x-rays that people use when they, when they take an image of someone using x-ray imaging? Or is there some difference? Do they just turn the power way up or is there, is there more to it? I would say the, the energy levels are, are different, uh, but the, the concept of forming the X-rays is quite similar, is you accelerate the electrons, they interact with the target and they form an X-ray beam that you use for treatment, but the energies are very different. Right, and so we talk about photons, but lots of people who don't work in this area of research, when they think about photons, they're thinking about visible light. So an x-ray is just the same stuff as visible light but much higher energy right and much much yeah. much higher higher frequency oscillation of yeah. the electromagnetic wave and also they travel through the body so that's how an x-ray image is made because yeah. they travel through the body but are blocked by the bones so i guess you're using the property of them traveling through the body to hit the cancer that you're aiming at exactly so you can think of x-rays as light you cannot see them and they have a much stronger penetration power. So they're able to cross the body. And as they are crossing the body, they deposit uh, energy in the body. And this is the energy that we use in cancer treatment. So what actually happens, we use the x-rays to deposit energy and this energy then causes breaks in the DNA, cancer of the cells. And so it's kind of a, a process, right? The physics goes into the chemistry, you have damage in DNA and that goes into the biology 
and that causes the tumor to shrink and hopefully disappear. It's fabulous, isn't it? So you've got these these X-rays, these high energy photons, and you're actually you're attacking the DNA so that the cancer gets killed. Yeah, so something that I always say is that we need to remind that radiotherapy is not like we're blasting tumors with high doses of radiation like a laser. We're not burning things. We're actually causing these biological processes to happen by causing DNA damage. So it's a bit of an indirect effect in general. Well, I was going to say that that makes sense why you get these unwanted side effects, because as you're aiming at the cancer, you're also hitting a lot of healthy tissue and mutating their DNA. So that's why you end up with these later life radiotherapy related cancers. Yeah, but one of the reasons why radiotherapy works is also because in general, cancer cells are much more sensitive to the radiation than the healthy tissues. So in Mm. practice, actually, we deliver radiotherapy in a fractionated way. The patients usually don't come for a single treatment. They come for many treatments over weeks. And that gives time for our healthy tissues to repair while the cancer cells are much more sensitive to the radiation and they end up not recovering from the damage. So you you mentioned um, you you use protons as well as x-rays. So protons to me are the big thing in the middle of an atom and, you know, that's where they are. How do you get them out? Are we taking them out? Are we throwing them at the cancer instead? (laughs) Yeah, so it's a concept, it's similar. It's instead of using x-rays, instead of targeting x-rays at the tumour, we are targeting accelerated protons. Now, protons are heavy charged particles, so they interact with the the tissues in a much different way than x-rays do. They kind of have a more tumultuous way of interacting with the body, and then they start to interact with the electrons, so they start knocking them out, lose a little bit of energy, lose a little bit of energy, and this starts speeding up and speeding up, so they end up depositing most of their dose at the end of the range. So at the beginning, They do not give a lot of dose, unlike x-rays, but at the end, they have a big drop in energy and they stop. So from that moment on, there's virtually no dose after. So instead of having an x-ray which just goes goes through and with some probability is stopped, so if you throw loads through, they'll they'll all stop at different positions. You're saying that the protons somehow, because of their their different properties being heavier and charged, they're going to interact with more stuff almost more predictably on average, and they're going to reach an average position. So they slowly lose energy in these collisions. And then as they start to slow down, they start slowing down faster. And they create this type of shape that we call a a brack peak. So most of their energy is deposited at the end, and then it goes down. And from a certain point on, which we call mostly the range, there's virtually no more energy going forward. And this makes the the treatments very different because suddenly you're able to spare any healthy tissues that are located after your tumour. So how much reduction are we talking? So if you say you have the same tumour and you treat it with x-rays or if you treat it with protons, what are the differences in the amount of healthy tissue that will get damaged? Well, it's a bit hard to explain in the sense that it depends a lot on the tumor you're treating, the volume you're treating. But what ends up happening is with protons, you do not give any radiation after your target. So you can very easily spare a lot of tissue from getting any dose at all. But as I just mentioned, it's so dependent on the specific cancer you're treating that not always protons will be better. And I think that's an important message to have is if you have there are some particular types of cancers that are, can be so big or they're located in areas of the body that can have a lot of changes. So, for example, in, in the abdomen, you can have bowel gas or not, you can have bladders filled or not. 
And in those cases, the protons are very sensitive, so they will not necessarily be better than uh, the, the photons can be. But if you have a specific patient groups that actually benefit a lot from less dose of the healthy tissues, just as children or young adults, then usually protons are the best treatment that they can have. It sort of sounds like photons are a bit wilder than the protons and in, in that the protons, they're going to go to this main depth and they're going to mostly stop there. They're going to maybe deposit a bit of energy along the way, but they're mostly going to stop in this hotspot. You mentioned doing modelling. Uh, presumably you're, you're predicting where that hotspot is, for example. It sounds much more important because it's perhaps higher risk in the proton case, because if you get that in the wrong place, all the energy is in the wrong place. Whereas if you get it in the right place, all the energy is in the right place. It sort of sounds like a bigger problem or a bigger motivation for you to do the modelling really well. Is that right? So exactly, that's exactly one of the challenges we have in proton therapy at the moment is for it to really work, for us to take the most of the possible theoretical benefits, we need to be very sure about where our protein beam is stopping. A lot of the work we do at the moment is on how can we be sure that our beam is going to the place we wanted it to be, we're not missing our target, and there's many ways we deal with it. So the easiest ways, for example, is if we have a certain target area that we want to reach to, we actually add margins to that to make sure that if there's some movements inside that area, at least your tumor is still fully covered. Uh, but ideally, you would like not to have any margins, right? Because if you don't have them, you can minimize the dose of the health issues and so reduce side effects as well. So a lot of the research in the area goes towards that exactly focal point you just mentioned is that we need to make sure we're targeting the right area all the time. And when you say margins, we're talking about like a border around where you want to go. Exactly. Where you Imagine your tumor in a very ideal scenario is a sphere with one centimeter of diameter, right? Okay, instead of being one centimeter, let's make it two centimeters. So we give five millimeters on each side and we make sure that we're always targeting that one centimeter radius sphere all the time. How did you end up where you are? How did you end up working as a researcher in, in the area of pediatric radiotherapy? So it was a long road, I have to say, in the sense that I did an undergrad in physics back home in Portugal. And when I finished my undergrad, I was not very sure of what I wanted to do after. I wanted to do physics because I wanted to know more about the most basic science, right? And I was fascinated by it. But when I finished my degree, I actually felt like I wanted to do something that was a bit more impactful to the real world. So at the time, I started looking for what could I do with my degree, and I found somewhere that there was something called medical physics. So I went to read about it and, and found out how we can use our physics knowledge to treat uh, diseases in the diagnosis as well. And it was quite fascinating to me. So I ended up applying for a master's. And from there on, I just stayed because it's fantastic, to be honest. It's a very different area. And it's also very, it, it's really feeling like to be able to work in an area that can have impact on the day-to-day -day lives of people. And in the particular, cancer is, of course, something that touches everyone. Everyone knows the burden of cancer in our society. And does the work you've done or are doing, is that having real impact in real patients' lives? I would say yes. So it, it depends exactly on the different projects. But for my PhD, I work on um, image guidance radiotherapy. So it's exactly focused at the things that Jamie asked before. How can you be sure that you're treating the right area? So during my PhD, I tackled that issue in particular. And to do that, we use imaging modalities that are available in the treatment room. We are able to take three-dimensional images of the patient right before treatment using a technique called CONBIM-CT. 
I used those types of imaging to detect if the patients had any changes in their anatomy that would impact their treatment. And some of that work is now starting to be routinely used by other centers. Wow, that's really, really cool. So what kind of changes in anatomy are you talking about? So I mentioned before that so radiation therapy, we don't usually give it in one fraction. Patients come for a few weeks and they receive their daily dose of radiation. So when we plan radiotherapy at the moment, we take a snapshot image of the patient. So we take a, a CT scan and we use that CT scan to identify the anatomy and identify where the tumor is. And then we plan the best treatment based on that snapshot. But we are human beings. In the five to six weeks that sometimes treatments take, we do not stay exactly as a snapshot. So, for example, if you're treating lung cancer, your lungs are moving during treatment, your tumor starts to shrink. And so that changes internally the, the position of the organs and the tumor. For example, in head and neck cancer, because the patients end up having trouble eating during the treatment, they also lose a lot of weight. So all these possible changes that occur inside the body, they can have an impact in how we deliver the dose. And we may have to account for them and we may have to refund those patients to, to make sure we have the best outcome possible. So those are the types of anatomical changes that we can address during treatments by using imaging to make sure what's happening and how can we adapt to it. And all of this, I guess, works towards your aim of reducing the side effects, reducing the amount of tissue that doesn't need to be irradiated and also just making sure you're targeting your tumour as, as well as possible. Yeah, so for example, going back to the case of proven therapy, something we saw during the work I did on a, a treatment of the patient for lung cancer in proven therapy is that a way to treat, uh, for example, the cancer is to point the beam towards the lung and the heart is right after the tumor. So what we can see sometimes is the tumor starts to shrink and so our proton beam starts going a bit more in depth. And in those cases, it will start giving very high doses to the heart. And the heart is an organ at risk that we should spare as much as we can. So we could see that in some cases, it would start giving much higher doses outside, and this is unwanted. But other things can happen, such as uh, we actually start missing parts of the tumor, and then you're no longer giving the dose that is necessary for an accurate treatment. Mm, so I can see that how your all of your different parts of your research are coming together. So the, the motion stuff that you worked on in your PhD is now working linking with your proton therapy work. Is that right? Yeah. So I did some work on understanding radiation-induced lung damage as well. So what happens to healthy lungs after radiotherapy and to better quantify it so we can potentially minimize it. But my research career kind of took from building into these interests into focusing on which would be the cohort that most benefits from protons and from side effect reduction. And those are pediatrics for sure. Because I know um, UCL Hospital is currently building a massive proton treatment centre right on Tottenham Court Road. I walk past it quite often. Why does there need to be a specialist centre just for proton therapy? Like, Is it such a complex technique that we can't do it in current hospitals? I think it's mostly related with cost. Proton therapy facilities are very expensive. And in terms of expertise, it also requires slightly different expertise than conventional radiotherapy. 
But I think the main reason why it's usually separate is because of costs. I've walked past the uh, developing radiotherapy centre as it's going to be on Tottenham Court Road as well. And one thing I could tell to our listeners is it's actually a huge hole in the ground. I mean, in my mind, this is this huge hole that is going to support some small room or something. How much of that big hole is anything to do with the fact that you need like a, a massive machine or something? It's all due to the fact that they need a very big machine. And they also need proper shielding because it will be producing radiation. So you need to make sure that the general public is not at risk. That is the reason why it's a big hole in the ground is so it can take all the equipment necessary, but also stay shielded from any radiation that may come out out of the production of the proton beam. I mean, the way we talked about this proton therapy, it sounds extremely directed. Does it spread radiation further afield as well or, or is it just a precaution? So the, the main field, the one that we direct at the patient, is very well collimated, very targeted. But in the production of this beam, there is secondary radiation that is produced. And that is why all the radiotherapy facilities are properly shielded. And that is not just for protons, but also any typical uh, X-ray room is properly shielded, is in a bunker to avoid that the secondary radiation will come out to the general public and to the employers that are working there. So when you say bunker, it makes me think of like nuclear war safety bunkers or something. I guess it's the same principle that you're blocking radiation coming in. What kind of materials do you need to do that? I think they have just very thick concrete walls. It sounds like it would work. (laughs) (laughs) And in in that centre, is it just one proton therapy machine or are there multiple? I love the idea that it's just one really big machine. I just like that. So actually, there is only one big machine, but that is the machine that produces the proton beams and accelerates them. So we have a single cyclotron, and that is the piece of equipment that accelerates the protons into an energy that we can use for clinical purposes. But then we need a beam steering line. So the beam is extracted and then it's guided into the direction of the treatment rooms. I think UCLH will have four treatment rooms and each treatment room will be able to provide treatments as things go. But there is only one accelerator. It's so expensive that you make sure that you have multiple rooms to go with it. Do you know how much it costs to build one of these things? I don't have actual numbers, but just for comparison purposes. So the NHS committed an investment of 250 million pounds to build two proton therapy centers in the UK. So that was back in 2015. So it's a lot of money. And for example, the next year, they also made a commitment to improve their more conventional treatments as well. And they spent 130 million pounds on upgrading and buying new Linux, around 100 of them. So 100 Linux versus 80 rooms, you can see that it's quite different. In and and a, li- a Linux is the, the sort of standard radiotherapy machine, right? Exactly. So it's the one that we use in typical photon treatments. So it's a linear accelerator. So in the proton sensor, we've got this cyclotron which is the thing that accelerates the protons. I'd love to just talk to you more about that because accelerating protons just sounds like a fabulous thing to do. (laughs) Uh, This cyclotron generates the protons and then they can be fed off into these different rooms and fired appropriately into the different patients for the different treatments. This is the same as the thing that they have at CERN, right? But on a small scale, is it the same thing? So the way they accelerate things is slightly different, but it's the same concept on different scales. We don't reach a proton energies as the energies that the, the CERN accelerator does. 
I imagine not. Otherwise, they wouldn't have built it so big. It, it certainly yes. puts the hole in the ground in perspective yes. when you think about this huge thing yes. many kilometres in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, so we think the cyclotron is very big, but in comparison to the CERN accelerator, it's still quite small. You did ask before, and I didn't answer about how we actually produce the, the protons. And that, that is something I, that I think is a bit underwhelming. We actually just have a canister of hydrogen, and we separate the electrons from the protons, and then from there, we start to accelerate the protons. So it all comes from a very, very small bottle of hydrogen and lasts four months of treatment. So actually it lasts for a very long time. We don't use that many protons. It's brilliant. It's really nice to yeah. know. <laughs> yes, it, it's actually quite underwhelming because you go into the source and the source is a small canister uh, with hydrogen. <laughs> and you bolt this onto this major piece of equipment that <laughs> costs millions of pounds to make. For the proton therapy, you're accelerating the protons away. You've separated them from the electrons. Could you reuse those electrons? Are you worried I, I about wasted electrons, them. Gemma? Yeah. Like, what about <laughs> Doesn't does like to see a single electron wasted. Surely we can we could recycle these for something. Yeah. Don't just I leave don't them think, behind. I don't think we recycle them, but we also do use electrons for treatment of cancer, like very superficial types of tumors like skin cancer they can be treated with electrons as well so they also have their important role can you feel radiotherapy when it's being done to you does it does it hurt is it hot can you feel this interaction in your body you know that's quite interesting you asked that a few years ago someone came into the department that was working on radiotherapy in ghana and they were actually saying that they struggle a lot to make sure patients were coming back from treatment after the initial fractions because as you lay down, you do not see anything, you do not hear anything, and they would not believe that actually some treatment was being done. So you really don't feel anything, but as the fractions start to pile up, you can start to feel some of the side effects. For example, burns in the skin where the beams enter are relatively common, but the initial fractions, you just lay there and you do not really feel that you're having something being done to you. You see the machine rotating and doing its thing, but you cannot see anything or feel anything. You find that people are actually sceptical that anything was really done because they couldn't feel it, they couldn't see it, didn't really know that it was happening. Yes, so this was something that happened in Ghana when they had people coming for treatment is they would actually think that there was nothing being done to them. But then a few weeks later, they would come back because then they would start to notice a difference. So after a few weeks, you start to see the tumor shrinking and all the effects. And then you believe that actually the treatment was doing something. So, yeah, it's, it's actually quite interesting that you may not think anything is happening to you. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. So if you manage to perfect radiotherapy or proton therapy, so you only hit the tumor and you don't hit any of the surrounding tissues, would you actually see any of those side effects or would the patient not notice anything happening at all? They could notice the changes. So for example, for superficial tumors, you would see it go away. You see them shrinking back and those types of things. You would actually see changes in the tumor. And if you could visualize them, you would notice. But if you truly spare the healthy tissues, I think most of the, the radiation induced problems, you would not have them. I would just like to say that they would probably not notice the side effects. They would just notice the good effects of the treatment. And the I guess that's, that the, that's, would... the, that's the aim of your whole research, right? That's the, goal. the dream. <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately, types of radiation we, we use, it's, it's impossible to never give those outside of the target. 
but we do our best to minimize it and where we have to give it, we make sure that we avoid the most sensitive areas of the body. No, I was just going to say that something that I think it's very important is to keep the message that pronouns are not always better. Yeah. Um, because mm. sometimes the, the media, I think the media, when it covers it, goes either to the side that pronouns are not better, there's no evidence, we should not be doing it, uh, right. to the other side that they are a miracle okay. and that they will, they are the best. And it's, yeah. it's probably somewhere in, in between. Some patient groups as children, young adults really, really benefit from it older patients will not benefit as much from it. And probably in some cases, x-rays are better. Uh, so it's all about talking to your doctor and finding out what is the best and most available option for you. One thing I remember is a few, a few years ago, there was a really big news story about that kid who couldn't get proton therapy and moved, was taken out of the country and his, his family were desperate for it. And after that, it, it felt like there was quite a feeling that well why don't we have this proton therapy why isn't everyone having proton therapy why won't people pay for it clearly that's what we need i actually have to say that uh the nhs was paying for it so now we're building two proton centers and we hope that most patients will be treated here but for many years the nhs has been sending children abroad for proton treatments in florida in the states one of the problems is some specific tumor types. It's very crucial that you start treatment as soon as possible because delaying treatment uh, may reduce the chances of survival. And I think that is one of the reasons why sometimes children were not sent is because it was more important for them to be treated as soon as possible than to be sent abroad and delay the treatment start. In the case of that was covered in the media, um, I'm not sure exactly what was happening, but the NHS was in fact sending children before and now we will have proton centers to cover for it. And when, when will our proton center be ready? Because it now looks a lot more like a building than a hole. So when's the opening date? Well, I think everything is planned to, to be later in the year, but we, we never know exactly, especially with, with the situation that is going on, if there's going to be delays. So far, the official date is, I think, late 2020. But the, the Christie in Manchester, they've already started treating. Uh, last year. No, yeah, mostly last year. So they started end of 2019. So we already have some capacity in the UK. That's great, great isn't it? Yeah. Mm. If someone's listening to this and they're really excited by the world of radiotherapy and proton therapy, what would you recommend they do? So I think following a degree in physics uh, with medical physics, uh, if you can, is the way to go. And after that, any master's degree in the same specialization, so medical physics and biomedical engineering. If you're interested in doing more clinical work, the NHS has a training scheme as well in where you become a clinical scientist. And so you can work more into the, the clinical work that is needed to deliver and do quality assurance in radiotherapy. If not, research is a, a great way to go, just like I do. I did actually come to UCL uh, during my master's in Portugal. So I was at UCL uh, under the Erasmus program. So I was one of the master's students for, uh, for the, um, the MSc in medical physics. And it was fantastic. So the teachers and the program and the modules covered were top quality. So I do recommend anyone that wants a career to, to come to UCL and study. It's really nice to know that there are people working on improving the ways we already have of treating cancer and, and going working harder in the physics and also the medicine to, to improve things. Yeah, I think that is actually what I end up enjoying the most about my job is the fact that to tackle this big issue, we have to tap onto the expertise of so many different areas of knowledge 
have the physics of the treatment. We have the engineering that makes possible all these machines to work. We have the biology. So different cancers, different tissues are differently sensitive to radiation. And then we have to wrap this all up under the clinical umbrella. And the doctors have a very important role in identifying the disease, prescribing the treatment. And so we get all these areas of knowledge together and all focus that's a very important problem of the, the society nowadays. Yeah, this is something that we keep coming coming up with again and again. I think we've all got this soft spot for mixing kind of elaborate and brilliant and interesting physics into something genuinely really useful in healthcare. And that's just a really fascinating combination. I totally agree. So thanks to Dr. Vega for sharing her research and career with us. This was a University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself, Jamie Guggenheim. It was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin McLeod. If you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of every month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering. If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses, including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies, which can also be found at various times throughout the years. You might consider following us on the department Twitter at UCL MedPhys, M-E-D-P-H-Y-S. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.